Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, and I will read for us from Mark chapter 9, verse 2 through to verse 32. Let's hear God's word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that a first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they, come, uh, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father, the child, cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. And we're afraid to ask him. This is God's word. 
we are exploring together uh, Mark's gospel. And the gospel of Mark is all about the gospel of Jesus. And Mark, as he tells uh, this story, we will, of course, know that there are four other gospels in the Bible, and they all tell the story of Jesus in slightly different, with slightly different approaches. Uh, Mark's emphasis is on the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, and this uh, divine human figure that Jesus here in this passage uh, utilizes the Old Testament title, Son of Man, further to explain to those who are following. The Son of Man, often in Christian circles, we think of Son of Man as a merely human designation, because it says Son of man, it makes sense, but from the book of Daniel, the Son of Man is a mysterious, divine-like, and yet somehow human figure that is prophesied. And when Jesus then says the Son of Man, what he's describing is how he in himself is somehow a fulfillment of this divine-like and yet human character. The Son of Man must suffer and then uh, rise again. And so this theme of Mark's gospel all along of who Jesus is and then how we are to respond has been further brought out in our passage. And obviously in the, uh, the beginning of this passage and then shining its light throughout the passage is one of the most remarkable and mysterious moments in, in the whole story of the life of Jesus, the transfiguration. And it is deeply puzzling to many people, as it was indeed to uh, Peter and the disciples to begin with. And not only is there that puzzle in this passage, there's another puzzle, which is, the, uh, the, the, of course, the boy who then is um, uh, healed. And Jesus says, this kind can only come out by prayer, which is a puzzling statement to many people. Are there some demons that are easier to exercise than others. What is Jesus meaning by that? And then right at the end of the passage, uh, he gives again, Jesus gives again his statement of his coming death and resurrection. And then we're told the disciples do not ask him about it because they don't understand. So throughout this passage, with the overall theme of Mark's gospel as revealing the identity of Jesus, we have these disciples and others who are watching Jesus be transfigured, watching him exorcise this mute and deaf uh, boy with this demon possession, and they're puzzled. They don't understand. How is it that the transfiguration, the revealing in some sense, the glory of Jesus, is connected to his crucifixion? He must suffer. How is it that the glorified one is the suffering one? And how is it that Jesus heals this boy when the disciples could not heal him? And, and, and over and over again with this remarkably mysterious and glorious transfiguration, this remarkably powerful healing, there's this sense throughout the passage that they don't understand. It's, it's like they have the Rubik's Cube in front of them, but they can't figure out how to solve it. They don't understand. And in our passage this morning, the understanding of who Jesus is, not merely intellectually or cognitively or rationally or nominally, but understanding the sense of truly grasping and experientially relating to and having his power at work even in the, the, the demon-possessed boy, even in the harshest, hardest, 
Ukraine devastation, inner city trauma, depressive uh, malaise, the, 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 the child who is sick, in, in these horrible experiences of human life, and yet the transfiguration of Jesus, how do those two go together? How is it that Jesus is both transfigured and crucified? Who is this Son of Man? And how am I to understand that, not merely intellectually, cognitively, oh, Jesus is glorious, yet he died, but actually experientially in the practicalities of my daily life. And this passage, I think, this is the case I'm going to be making, is designed from beginning to end to help us see what prevented them from understanding and then what provided true understanding. And we're going to spend most time in what provided them true understanding because that's the burden of the passage and uh, pastorally, of course, more helpful than merely spending most of our time what prevents understanding. But the passage has both going on. What prevents understanding, seeing truly who Jesus is as the Son of Man, truly what it means for him to be transfigured, actually how we access his power in the difficulties of our lives, what it actually means for him to die and rise again, and how we experience that in our own lives, to understand that, what prevents it, and then what provides that understanding. And it's fascinating to me, as I studied this passage uh, this week, to notice that what, under, what prevents the understanding is here in this passage one thing, and that is fear. Look with me at uh, verse 6 of chapter 9. There's Peter. Uh, the, the transfiguration, and uh, as we'll see in a moment, he, he's he, typically for Peter, who the Apostle Peter never opens his mouth without inserting his foot, and uh, Peter gets it wrong again. But why does he get it wrong? Verse 6, he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And this passage, I believe, this is my case, hangs together around this understanding or knowing and what prevents it and what uh, provides for that understanding. What's preventing his understanding is that he's frightened. He's terrified. Well, same again. If you come to the end of the passage, verse 32, Jesus now has been teaching about the, uh, not the transfiguration, uh, in this passage, but now Jesus is teaching about his crucifixion, and the two go together, the transfiguration and crucifixion, which is the mystery of this passage, how the two go together, and how we can understand that. He's teaching about it, verse 32, they did not understand the saying. Why? They're afraid. They're afraid to ask him. And the meat in the passage, which is, of course, the, the, the story of Jesus exercising the deaf and mute boy, uh, there's a similar fear that has uh, obviously grasped hold of the boy who's convulsing before Jesus and foaming at the mouth, and the father who's desperate for Jesus to heal his son, and the disciples who are at the very least perplexed as to why they can't help uh, the, uh, the boy. 
So often what prevents our understanding is fear. I don't often quote from Star Wars in my sermons, but I'm reminded of Yoda, who uh, in the much maligned first prequel, The Phantom Menace, which I think is usually thought to be a complete disaster of a movie, but I actually quite like it, but there we go. Uh, Yoda at one point says, fear leads to the dark side. Uh, Fear uh, leads to anger, anger to hate, and hate to suffering. I think Yoda is partly right and partly wrong. Where he's wrong is thinking that suffering is the worst thing that can happen to you. But where he's right is that fear is often a barrier to true spiritual understanding. And if instead of quoting from Yoda, we quote from the Bible, which is certainly surer ground, and we think in our minds of uh, the book of Genesis, when evil enters the world, in Genesis chapter 3, the man hides from the Lord because he's afraid. And so often we are, aren't we? There's that um, popular Christian contemporary song that you may have heard on the radio that says that fear is a liar. Uh, Certainly it is, isn't it? Fear tells us that uh, we're not loved, that we're not beautiful, that we're not accepted. Of course, there is a correct kind of fear, the fear of God, which is a reverential love and more than respect, a trembling adoration. But there's another kind of fear which prevents us from opening up our hearts and our minds to the truth of God. It's the original lie in the Garden of Eden that God wants to ruin your lives, to ruin our life, not to rescue us from death, Uh, that God is out to dominate you, not to liberate you. And so we're frightened to give our lives to God, we're frightened to give of our resources to God, we're frightened to go on the mission field, we're frightened to serve in some area of church life. Fear is a, a, a preventative barrier uh, in this passage and in many people's lives. And of course the answer is love, the love of Jesus, the deep compassion of Jesus in this passage. Love casts out fear. That sheep may safely graze because we have a good shepherd and we do not need to fear. Constantly, in all our media and both church and secular, people are trying to get our attention by promoting fear. 
But fear, the wrong kind of fear, is a barrier to trusting the sovereign, loving goodness of our good shepherd. They didn't know because they were terrified. They didn't ask because they were frightened. Uh, what, though, uh, is the, um, uh, the way that real understanding is provided in this passage? And as I say, I want to spend a little bit longer on this because it is the burden of the passage, and obviously it has more pastoral, uh, uh, positive uh, application too. So for both reasons, I want to spend more time on the solution than the problem. <laughs> uh, so what is the solution? Well... Uh, first, we look at the transfiguration, don't we? And in the transfiguration there, we have uh, this mysterious moment when Jesus becomes, as it says, verse 3, radiant, intensely white, blindingly bright. Uh, no one on earth could bleach uh, his clothes. And Elijah with Moses uh, talking with Jesus. Uh, those two are picked because Moses represents, of course, the law, and Elijah the prophets. So the whole of the Old Testament scriptures are there conversing with Jesus. And Peter, who doesn't understand, because he's terrified, as we've just seen, um, opens his mouth and inserts his foot. Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He's forgotten his acclamation of just a moment ago that Jesus is the king, the Christ. Now he's back to treating Jesus as just one among other prophetic figures. A tent for Moses and a tent for Elijah and a tent for Jesus at the same level at the top of uh, this mountain in uh, the north of uh, Canaan, probably the highest uh, snow-capped mountain. Um, as, as you can see pictures of it these days. Most scholars think it was up there in the north of, uh, of, uh, to the north of Galilee. Um, but God, the Father, corrects uh, Peter's misunderstanding. Verse 7, a cloud overshadows them. That is the, the cloud of God's glory. The cloud that came in Solomon's temple to indicate the presence of the living God now overshadows them. And a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Well, which is it, Moses or Elijah? No. Suddenly, there's no one with them but Jesus only. So what has been taught to us is that Jesus is the Son of God and that his word is the word that we're to listen to. Moses and Elijah are gone. Why? Because they're fulfilled in Jesus. The law and the prophets point to Jesus. What we have here then is the first tool to deep spiritual experience of God is the transfigurative glory of Jesus' word. Here's a lens for us when we're studying the Scriptures, to come to experience God, to interpret the law, Moses, the prophets, Elijah, 
through the voice of Jesus. To read the whole of the Bible, Old and New Testament, as pointing to Jesus. That's the transfigurative glory of Jesus' word. The the Bible is not a random selection of instructions that you can put on a poster to make you feel better about life. Uh, The Bible is not a disconnected series of instructions that can be ripped out of context and still make sense. The Bible makes sense when we see it through the lens of the transfigurative glory of who Jesus is and of Jesus' word. And therefore, as the voice from heaven tells us, we're to listen to him. And my dear friends, if we are to experience God uh, deeply and profoundly this morning, We need to listen to Jesus' word. If we are to have a healthy church, we need the word to be at the heart of it. Jesus' word, the scriptures, it all is his word and it all speaks to him. To understand the Lord, the first tool is the transfigurative power of Jesus' word. I remember uh, when I was recently um, interviewing a um, scholar uh, who had left the faith. And what fascinated me as I was interviewing him and trying to find out why he had abandoned Christianity, what I increasingly discovered was that his approach to the Scriptures was disconnected. Um randomized, incoherent. He didn't have a frame of a story. In other words, he, he hadn't been to the transfigurative mountain and seen Moses and Elijah suddenly disappear. And as he looked to the Scriptures, be left with a vision of none other than Jesus, for it all points to him, and it's all about him. He was stuck on the various difficulties, the various parts of the different aspects of the texts, but he couldn't see the transfigurative glory of Jesus' word. The the lens through which you will grasp how the Bible fits together is through this voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So that's the first tool. The second tool, I think, is even more pastorally uh, remarkable. And this, of course, is the, uh, the, the healing of the boy with the unclean spirit. And this, this tool is all about faith, obviously, but in a most astonishing way. They cannot heal him. Why? Verse 19. Because they're faithless. They, they are a faithless generation. And uh, the, um, uh, the father 
uh, is lacking faith. Uh, verse 22, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And then how tender is the father's cry. I believe, help my unbelief. He believes and yet he doesn't believe. So while we, first we've had this tool that moves through the barrier of misunderstanding through fear, which is the transfigurative glory of Jesus' word, now we have this tool which is faith, trust, But what's remarkable about it is the saving sufficiency of unimpressive faith. Jesus heals the boy. The man has faith, sort of. I believe, help my unbelief. And yet his boy is saved. It doesn't take much faith to move from fear to flourishing. It doesn't take much faith to move from being condemned for your sins to experiencing the forgiveness of God's grace. It doesn't take much faith to lie in your deathbed and experience the hope of the presence of Jesus. Oh, it takes faith, but unimpressive faith is sufficient. I think I've been taught this by a number of people down through the years, but one who always comes to mind about this is uh, a woman called Frances. Frances was a member of the church that I helped replant back in New Haven, Connecticut. And she was a <laughs> Brooklyn, New York Jew. Her accent was to my ears, quite extraordinary. Her personality was amazing. My older brother once came to church with me. He isn't yet a believer, my older brother. And I invited him to church, and Francis greeted him with a huge hug. And I asked my brother what it was like afterwards, and he said it was like being hugged by a small car. <laughs> you get a little sense of who Francis was. She would tell anyone about Jesus in any place at the drop of a hat. When I was preaching, uh, she loved Jesus so much. In the congregation, as I was, uh, if I got closer to talking directly about Jesus, I would hear Francis saying, sometimes quietly, sometimes more loudly, she would just say, Oh, Jesus. She taught me about this saving sufficiency of faith, even unimpressive faith. Her faith was impressive. But she taught me about it in particular in one moment when 
I walked to the back of our church and there were a group of Yale University Divinity School students who were talking about some great complexity. As I remember it, it was the relationship between Karl Barth's theological universalism under question versus uh, Rana's theological ecclesiology and they were going on and on about this around and around in circles and I was gearing myself up mentally to engage thinking oh here we go again I'm going to have to figure out how to solve this problem for these young enthusiastic people who are drinking from the hydrant of on the one side Bartian theology on the other side post-Vatican II um, Catholic technicalities and figure that all out for them and all the complexities of that. And I was uh, listening and, as I say, mentally, in biblical terms, girding my loins when Francis walked past. She heard them for a moment, grabbed their attention, as Francis could only do, I looked at them and said, oh, it's easy. It's all about Jesus. And then I walked over and said, she's right, and here's why. You may have a sick child or you may have sickness yourself, and I cannot promise this morning that if you have unimpressive faith, God will necessarily heal you. I have seen people healed from physical sickness, So neither do I promise that he will not. But our ultimate healing is eternal. And God's concern with these healing miracles in the Bible, Jesus did not heal everyone, even in Canaan. His ultimate concern is to point to the saving power of God, that our saving experience will be eternal, that we be saved not merely from temporary physical suffering, but from infinite eternal suffering. What I cannot promise you, though I, I do not promise that it will not happen either, that your physical ailments will be healed, I can promise you that if you believe, unimpressive as that faith may be, a door will be opened and he will come in and your life will be forever transfigured. Well, there's one final tool here which in many ways I think is, at least for me, even more surprising And you will see it in the the last part where Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. So we have the transfiguration connected to the crucifixion. How do we understand the two and the mess and muck of our world? He's transfigured and then he comes down to this moment of suffering. And we've seen that fear is a, a barrier. But the transfigurative glory of Jesus' word and the saving sufficiency of even unimpressive faith are tools that we can utilize. Here we come to the third one which is prayer. Look at verse 29. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. 
And then in verses 30 to 31, when he says how the Son of Man, this divine human-like figure, is going to be delivered into the hands of men, they will kill him, and when he's killed, and after three days he will rise. By the way, I think there's an indication of the resurrection power that is the ultimate hope for this boy and for us when Jesus takes him by the hand and he arose, and Jesus then prophesies his resurrection. But anyway, certainly Jesus is, is predicting his death and re- Jesus' own death and resurrection. And they don't understand. Why? Because they are afraid. We've seen the barrier there. What should they have done? They should have asked. They should have asked Jesus. They should have prayed. And so often we don't. Uh, the, the great irony for me about this passage is I obviously look at the commentaries when I'm studying for a sermon and I I read it in the original language and I bang my head against the text as long as I can trying to understand it. And this week, as I was looking at this text, I was trying to figure out how on earth to preach this. And as I was doing that, I noticed the last part of this passage. They did not understand because they didn't ask. And I thought to myself, Josh, have you actually asked to understand? So I got on my knees and asked. Uh, When I cannot concentrate in prayer, I pray on my knees, which was somewhat embarrassing, I think, for the cleaner who cleans my office this week, who came in to find the senior pastor on his knees. I hope he didn't think I was having a personal crisis, but I I was praying. Not because that's particularly pious, it's because it It's very hard to fall asleep on your knees, at least I have found when you're praying. But I asked. And then the passage fitted together. So easy, isn't it, for those of us who are around Christian circles to give lip service to prayer to talk about praying, but if we're to experience the truth of God, we need to ask. We have our prayer meetings, as I mentioned earlier in the service, uh, Monday morning, Wednesday evening, uh, Friday lunchtime, Sunday during our services we're praying. We have our prayer meetings and we pray. And if anything good has come in this church or will come in this church, I'm convinced it's through the prevailing power of prayer. Preachers often can be persuaded that they are called to the ministry of the Word. But of course, preachers are also called to prayer. It's the ministry of the Word and prayer. Churches can often be persuaded of the transfigurative glory of Jesus' word. But it's much harder to persuade a church of the prevailing power of prayer. I have seen people who have understood this. One man who comes to mind, who have I mentioned his name, some of you would know who he was, so I will not mention his name. He doesn't come to this church, but he's a well-known Christian leader. And he's a remarkable preacher and a remarkable scholar. 
And I was in the same church of him, as him at one point, one season of my life. I wasn't on staff. I was at the church, and he was not on staff of that church either. He was doing some research or sabbatical or something. And that church only had, as far as I can remember, one prayer meeting, and that was on a Wednesday night. And like so often in church life, the prayer meeting was not particularly well attended, but there was a faithful crew who prayed. And I was astonished to discover when I went to that prayer meeting and looked around that this famous man, whenever I got to the prayer meeting, with all the other things that were on his schedule, he was sitting with those 10 or 15 people, quietly praying. We look at the world today with all its difficulties. We look at our culture with all its challenges. We look at the church across the country in the Western world and wonder where increasing health will come from. Who will grasp the transfiguration and the crucifixion? The glory through the cross. It will come to those who give their minds attentions to the the glory of Jesus' word. It will come to those who, even with unimpressive faith, put their trust in God. And it will come to those who pray. And so we are left humbled before our sovereign Lord and bowing in prayer together. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we are aware of many different needs among us and individuals here will be aware of various um, things to pray for. So in a moment of silence now, we bring those individual needs to you in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we love being on the mountain, the heights of experience. And yet then we come down the mountain to the demon-possessed boy. We love hearing about transfiguration, not so much about crucifixion. Help us, Lord, through your word to put our trust in you, we ask for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen.